Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jay Wojciechowski. He is professor of government and philosophy at University of Texas, Austin. His previous books include What We Can't Not Know and The Revenge of Conscience. His new book is How and How Not to Be Happy, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Wojciechowski. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be uh, with you today. Now, the, the, this is a how, how-to, how-not-to book. That makes this book a primer, uh, a kind of advice volume, yes? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I don't think it's very much like the other life hack books and, uh, <laughs> right. and you know, and, and help yourself. But I, I, I suppose it does fall into that, uh, into that genre, yeah. Well, uh, it, it might strike, well, I, I, I guess may, maybe not, but... Why do people need guidance on how to be happy? I mean, isn't it just a simple matter of uh, following uh, inner desires and needs and wants? Well, there's something to be said for that view, and uh, and I give a lot of credit to that point of view in the book. We do know something about ourselves. We um, we would have to. We have inside knowledge of ourselves. If 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 you ask me, what is the moon made of? I only know what the scientists have told me. But if you ask me something like, well, when you do something, are you always acting for the sake of some good? I know about that. I may, if I've never dealt with questions like that, I might have to think about it. But then I can say, well, yeah, of course I do. I guess I do. Now, the problem is that although we know something from inside knowledge, we don't necessarily think about it. We don't necessarily connect the dots. We aren't necessarily aware of all the things we know. Somebody, somebody can call our attention to something and we say, oh, yeah. I, I guess I always knew that, but I never thought about it before. We even sometimes, um, that's why Wittgenstein said that philosophy is assembling reminders. Um, we even sometimes uh, um, uh, try to keep from thinking about some of the things that we know because they uh, distress us. Hmm. It might imply that you, that uh, maybe I need to change or or um, or that I'm in error about something and I don't I don't like that. So I may even try not to be aware of some of the stuff that's that's down there in my mind, which is an ultimately failing enterprise. Uh, but uh, but there are all these reasons why we often need help. So the I think the right kind of help is thoughtful conversation. It's uh, something like Socratic dialogue, and that's what I try to do in this book. That. That actually gets to your method, sort of the conversation, the dialogue, because you say that you are not trying to, quote, prove anything. Uh, are, are there arguments, then, in, in the book? Are, are you making arguments or more, more offering, offering, again, the, the, this sort of conversational interchange? How would you characterize the, the method here? 
Yes, I'm absolutely offering arguments. I'm trying to go in a uh, in a in a very reasonable, very rational way, uh, giving reasons. Now, the reasons will appeal uh, in many cases to our common sense, but they don't just take it as it is. Uh, I challenge that common sense. Now, what do you challenge common sense with? The only materials you really have to challenge it are other common sense. This is what um, this is what Aristotle did, for instance. He says um, he says, well, what do you what he asks his students? What is what do you suppose happiness is? A lot of them they were the they were the children of the uh, noble class. They say, well, happiness lies in honor. And he says, well, would you want to be honored for qualities that you knew you didn't really have? And they say, well, I, I, I guess, I guess, I guess not. So, uh, so he says, well, then it wasn't really honor that you wanted. It was more like, um, wasn't it more like, uh, like having the things that are worth honoring and then maybe being honored for them? Uh, that's what I mean by cross-examining common opinion by means of other common opinion. It's a rational method. It's actually the classical method of philosophy. Thomas Aquinas does it, although his format uh, in his disputations tends to obscure that, and readers don't realize he's doing it, but he does start with, with common opinions and examine them. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Now, I'm getting a little bit of help. You know, the classical method wasn't just common opinion, but also the opinions of people who had commonly been reputed wise. So I do... I, I do take up some insights or alleged insights of uh, allegedly wise people over the centuries. Uh, you know, going into Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, lets people know that there is some some deep philosophical thinking in the book, and and you you also you know renounce the uh, a few minutes ago renounced the, the the sort of the quality of thought and opinion and prose in in you know the self help book. Books, the popular self-help books, but I actually think you're able to, I'll say to our listeners, you're able to bring the, the wisdom, the knowledge of the ancients and of our most profound and sometimes abstruse philosophers into the book in a very conversational way. Uh, it's a very nice read. One is able to flow to flow through it. So I salute you. As an editor, I salute you for, for that. Uh, but now you... you well, you go into thank you, thank you. Uh, for, for the broad question about the state of happiness and unhappiness in America today. Just to generalize, where would you place that? Well, the um, look. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to quote from a statistic, but I want you to know that in the book, I take statistics with more than a grain of salt because. People's uh, self-reports of their subjective feelings of happiness are often very unreliable. However, it is striking that people, people that when you ask people, they report lower levels of satisfaction with their life and of happiness than at, than at uh, any time in the in the history of polling. Hmm. Now, more 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 convincing to me is what we find in talking with people. I. Once I, I was teaching a uh, freshman class, I used to run them through a little drill like the one that I was just describing from Aristotle. He gets them to the point when they say, is, where, is there something that you want that you want for its own sake and not for the sake of something else? And they all say happiness. My students do the same thing. And then I say, do you like Aristotle? Well, what do you think happiness is? And I'm ready for them to say, because this is what often happens, well, I think it lies in uh, friendship or it lies in this or it lies in this. Um, on this occasion, the first half dozen students asked, what is happiness? All gave versions of the same answer. Nothing but freedom from suffering and pain. And I, I thought, wow, 
what kind of pain are they experiencing in their young lives? These were freshmen. My own suspicion, because when I finally got them to give me a positive element instead of a negative element, they all then wanted to say pleasure. And uh, I think the hedonistic paradox that if you make pleasure the object of your life, you don't get much of it, uh, is, you know, pleasure comes as a byproduct of pursuing what, what, is, what, is, what is good in a primary sense, like, like, uh, like friendship, like the love of God, like knowledge. Um, uh, they don't know that. They put, they, so if they, they've pursued pleasure and they've hit the hedonistic paradox earlier than most people used to, it, it, the people used to, used to hit the crunch, hit the wall, pleasure isn't doing it at maybe 35, 40, and here they're hitting it at 18. It just breaks my heart. Hmm. Reality so I think that we've got a, I think we've got a problem out there, and mm. I think that people are cutting themselves off from a lot of the things that uh, contribute to happiness. We don't understand what virtue is. We don't. Uh, we're afraid of adult responsibilities that uh, that are so so much of what makes life worth living, and uh, even adults are afraid of them, and so forth. You quote uh, quite a few people early in the book who actually urge the rest of us not to address the question, am I happy? What do they find wrong mm -hmm. with that question? Well, I, I, they, they have a lot of different reasons. Some will say, for instance, that, and, and I, let me preface this with the remark, whenever there's an error, or at least, look, I'm trying to say what I think is true, so at, the, you understand, I mean, what I think is an error. Whenever there's an error, whenever we make a mistake, uh, even if it is a mistake, there must be some grain of truth in it, or we couldn't have found that mistake plausible. And so in all these reasons not to ask why we're happy, there's always a grain of truth there. It, just like in the false opinions about what makes us happy, there's always a grain of truth, but people get that grain wrong. So one reason why people say, oh, you shouldn't ask, you shouldn't be asking that, is because they say uh, obsession with what are we happy yet is not going to make you happy. They're right, but now how do they know? that obsession, asking, are we happy yet? Are we happy yet? Does not make you happy. They know because they have actually, they must have done some inquiry into happiness. They must have thought about it. And so they, they couldn't be saying, we shouldn't think about it at all. They've learned one important thing about happiness. All right, without being obsessed, is there anything else that we can learn? Another thing, mistake people sometimes make, uh, this is a mistake that um, Jews and Christians will occasionally make. They say, we shouldn't be pursuing happiness. We should be pursuing God. Well, God is our ultimate good, but I don't think that means that we should be pursuing God instead of happiness. I think that means God is our happiness. When we when we think that it's any that that ultimately our com that complete and perfect uh, happiness and flourishing that leaves nothing to be desired lies anywhere else in God, it's a case of mistaken identification. You know that can even be made an existence proof. Uh, Thomas Aquinas asked whether whether uh, the existence of God is self-evident. He says, "Well, no, it's not self-evident. Uh, you can work it out reasonably. Um, in this life, we don't see God face to face, and so it isn't it isn't self-evident to us." But he says, nevertheless, people pursue happiness, and so they do have a cloudy and confused idea of God, who is the ultimate object of our desire. Hmm. Uh, a quick question: Does does faith make people happier? Overall, well, overall, I mean, is there's, this generally there's, there's, yeah, there's two ways to there's two ways to take that. Um, first of all, we when we say, "Does this make me happier?" We're often asking, we're often asking, "Does it make me feel good?" 
And I don't think happiness is a feeling at all. I think happiness is something, not something we're feeling, but something that we're doing. It is, um, as Mortimer Adler once put it, there's a difference between asking, am I having a good time, and asking, am I having a good life? Now, I think faith is essential to, to having a good life, but it's not for the reasons that some of the, let me call them the relativists of meaning, uh, um, um, say a lot of the people in the the happiness studies crowd, the positive psychology movement, say, "Oh, you know, you have to have meaning in your life." And so, for people who have faith in God, that's their meaning. But I may be an atheist, and I and I feel stirred by nature, and that's my meaning. Or uh, or I idolize my uh, my my boyfriend or my girlfriend, and that's my meaning. Um, you know, well, okay, you might as well say that uh, that you be a Nazi and say killing all the Jews is your meaning. Then is it really all the same? They seem to think that it doesn't matter. Augustine had said, "I ask people whether they'd prefer the truth or, or prefer to be happy," and they have no hesitation in saying they prefer they prefer to be happy in the truth. Uh, <laughs> right. They. The the um, a life that is based on on futili- futility the on on a lie is not a well lived life. It's that's not what we mean by happiness. So if faith is understood as just something that gives me personal meaning and makes me happy, I think no faith is. If that's what you mean, the answer to the question is no. Faith isn't going to make you happy. If on the other hand, faith is directing us to God, who is the ultimate source of our happiness then we will experience um, our chances of that fragmentary and incomplete and vulnerable happiness that is possible in this life are going to be much enhanced. But more important, it's directing us to what is possible after this life. Um, An important thing that a lot of religious people misunderstand about this, they say, well, God is my my ultimate good, and here I am, I'm going to church, and I'm I'm praying to God, and I'm singing all these praise songs, and and I'm not completely satisfied. What's wrong with me? There is nothing wrong with you. That perfect satisfaction that you're looking for is really there. But we only have glimpses and flashes of it in this life. St. Paul speaks of groaning in uh, in uh, you know in, in our nature is groaning we're in we're in agony to to see god we can't we we want to see him and uh, if we expect that that is going to be something that we experience in this life we're going to be disappointed now at the other end of the spectrum some people say well i see that um, i'm not completely satisfied in this life and so i guess there's nothing more i'm just going to settle and they don't even strive. You know, they just say, I've, I've had, I had a graduate student who was bitter, bitter about this. She had thought that the meaning of happiness is pleasure. And I said, but you know, there's an awful lot of pain. And uh, she said, that's just the way it is. You never have much, and you just have to, you just have to, have to, have to grit through and bear it. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's very sad. So one of the important things that I have to try to do in this book is explain why even though the happiness of this life, which is nothing to sneeze at, by the way. It's fragmentary, it's incomplete, it's vulnerable, but it's, it's a whole lot better than the contrary, that there's more than that. And you don't have to throw away the, uh, the, the, the aspiration for that complete and perfect fulfillment that leaves nothing to be desired, which is found only in the face of God. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, 
and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You proceed through a lot of the things associated with happiness. Uh, address them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, uh, first one is, what is the relationship of happiness to wealth? Well, people, you know, I, I said that there is a um, grain of truth in every error. The idea that happiness lies in wealth is an error, but there is a grain of truth in it. We do need some material things. We are not, I mean, angelism is a big mistake. The idea that we're just souls, we don't have bodies, you don't have to pay any attention to the needs of the body. Of course I do. I I need to put food on the table for my family. I need to put a roof over their heads. I I need to be able to clothe them. I need to eat myself. And I need other, you know, I need other kinds of things too that aren't usually called wealth, but that are that are uh, are 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 external you know goods I need friendship and so forth um, but the problem is that people then make the mistake of thinking, okay, this material stuff, I need this stuff, and so that's where happiness lies, and the more of it I get, the more happy I will be. Uh, it looks like the kinds of you know the people people are often uh, in our day suicidal when they're when they're in destitution but they're often suicidal when they're very wealthy and living in high status neighborhoods too hmm. the uh you know finding a a a certain moderate level where you're where you're living at the level of um at the level of your station or a little bit below seems to be seems to be the best um the best target there with respect to wealth and also wealth is not just like any of the of the of the human goods wealth is not a good in and of itself you have to know what it's for and what to do with it um and this is why the virtues are so important you know aristotle once remarked and i think he is dead on on this that even good fortune in excess might better be called bad fortune Hmm. And we can add even good fortune, even if it isn't in excess, if I don't have the moral character, the virtues necessary to know how to make use of this, that's going to be bad fortune to me, too. Hmm. The, you know, wealth is, wealth is something that could be a good up to a certain minimum level, but, uh, but, but virtues, are, virtues are something that can't not be good, and they're necessary to make uh, the other things good. Now... Doesn't extraordinary beauty make you automatically happy? Extraordinary beauty, now there is something so interesting here. Certainly, there is, um, look, we have a longing for beauty. And uh, the satisfaction of these longings is 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 pleasing. It's delightful. It's it's elevating. Some longings much more so than others. But the longing for beauty, like the longing um, for for love, uh, is is often misunderstood because usually another longing is mixed up with it. You see something beautiful, and there, there are, it has the fragrance of eternity. You love your wife, and your love has the fragrance of eternity. There's really two longings here going on. There's the longing for the beauty itself, which can be satisfied by beauty. Or, as it may be, the longing for love, which can be satisfied by love. I've been married for 50 years. Love is sweet. Okay? 50 uh, years? Oh, yes, yes, 50 years. Isn't that unbelievable? I'm a real dinosaur. Good for you. <laughs> and your wife. Good for you. <laughs> the uh the uh, uh thank you the 
the no is wonderful but um but the that longing uh that longing for love can be human love can be satisfied that longing for beauty can be satisfied but the other love the other longing that that longing arouses longing for the transcendent beauty longing for the the for the eternal love that can't be satisfied by the by the beautiful painting by the sunset by the by the um by even by the face of the beloved the glory of the face of the of the beloved i look at my wife's face sometimes and it's as though it's glowing but what that is that's a vision of her in beatitude. That's a vision of how God sees her. And so what that's really directing me toward is another longing that she can't satisfy because it is a longing for God. The best thing that I can do with her is to walk together into, into that mystery of God. Next, health. What about the relationship of health and happiness? We have such an such a obsession with health in our society. Is that a sign of health will make you happy? Uh, no. Uh, again, it is a lot harder <laughs> to flourish if you're in pain all the time. Although, you know, there are some pretty happy, unhealthy people, and there are some very unhappy, healthy people. I, I quote a fellow in the book. I, you have to have compassion for him. Nobody could fail to have sympathy for for him and could understand his motives in saying this, even though he was wrong. He was a recovering alcoholic and had really, after describing a night full of nightmares of spiders and things, he, he says, uh, health is everything. If you have your health, you have everything. If you don't have your health, you have nothing. He was putting all his eggs in that basket, and that is just wrong. Um, of course, we should try to be to be healthy, but uh, you know, as we've seen in the during the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, obsession with health, the terror that I might become infected, so that I cut off all my relations with other people and close myself in the little womb of my of my apartment. I won't see other people's faces and won't let them see mine, even at a distance. This is not. Uh, this is so unnatural for us and so contrary to our good and our happiness that it's even making people sick. Uh, there's been recent information that a vastly greater number of people have died during the pandemic than the number whose deaths can be traced to the disease. And it looks like, to me like like um, like some of, you know, there are various explanations. Maybe these were secondary diseases caused by the disease, and there's no doubt something to that. But it's not enough. It, I think that some of the preventative measures that we've taken and some of the responses that we've made, uh, terribly increasing anxiety, obsession, cutting ourselves off from from natural social contact, have, um, have made us sicker in many cases than the disease did. So, uh, sure, pursue your health in a reasonable way, but don't treat it as the only good. Uh, to be pursued in uh, in uh, in abstraction from all others. You discuss fame and glory as well. All this goes back to the discussions of the ancients uh, on these issues. But I wanted to get to a modern uh, issue here that you bring up, and that is uh, the the focus on self esteem. Uh, oh yeah. Especially in in say elementary school with with children, the focus on self esteem. Is there any? Science behind the idea that low self-esteem causes social and personal problems and deep unhappiness? 
Well, people thought this was the great panacea when the self-esteem movement broke out. It's been, it's been going now for a half a century. When the self-esteem bro- movement broke out, people said that it was going to uh, reduce crime rates and reduce drug addiction, addiction and make families better and make marriages better and, and even reduce taxes because uh, people with high self-esteem would work harder and pay more taxes. And so, and so there would be a budget surplus and you could then reduce the taxes. I mean, there were crazy things that people said. Now, of course, we should not hate ourselves. We, we, we are uh, made in God's image. There is, a, there is a certain ordinate self-love that we ought to have. But, uh, but we've been encouraged to worship ourselves. You know, there will be a mirror over a bathroom in, a, in, the, in, over, in, in, a, in an elementary school, and it says you're looking at one of the greatest people ever uh, in, in existence. This is, you know, the, the evidence actually runs in the other direction, and it's, it has caught some of the psychologists who had been on the bandwagon by surprise and they've jumped off the bandwagon. Hmm. Uh, one says, well, we tested some of those hypotheses, and we found that that um, high self-esteem seemed to make people a little bit more confident and, it ma- and, um, and made them sometimes feel good, but that's about all, that's about all that, we, that we found. Students who were tested, they had um, low-achieving students in a class, in, in some classes, and they, they, the control group, um, they just encouraged them to work hard and so forth. Uh, and to try to do better in the experimental group, they did that, but they also took took special measures to boost their self esteem and to and to encourage them to think that they were really great, they were really cool. And uh, the students in the in the in the group that where they did made all these efforts to to um, boost their self esteem did markedly more poorly than the students in the other group. Hmm. Uh, the the um, the, uh, the with the evidence that scores on the narcissism index, the narcissism score and the multiphysic personality index are going up over time in the general population. And so some psychologists have actually started to say, oh, well, that's okay. That's normal narcissism. Well, look, that's, that's crazy. Of course, everybody even a normal person will have a score of some sort on a narcissism index, just like every every object, even if it's 60 degrees below zero, is going to have some number on a thermometer. But that doesn't mean that, but to say there's normal narcissism is like saying that just because um, uh, just because a courageous person has to have a certain amount of fear that 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 there that we should have normal cowardice uh, <laughs> narcissism is 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 a is a is a term for a pathology it's not hitting the mark between the right and the wrong amount of of uh of uh self confidence so I think that we've done a lot of damage to people with this we have um, we've taught people to glorify themselves to think that they are to think that they are little gods and it's it's not the only problem that we have today but it certainly is contributing to a lot of other social pathologies and individual sources of misery. My, my response to them is, do you know how narcissus ended? It, it didn't go well. I think there's a lot of psychological wisdom in the story of, of Narcissus um, uh, from the beginning uh, of, of his life. Okay, power. Doesn't power enable you to do all the things you want and, and make you happier? <laughs> Power is one of those things like wealth, where a lot of people believe that it will make them happy, but nobody wants to admit it. Um, on when you, my students will often choose their jobs exclusively on the basis of whether they can pull down the big bucks. Um, but if you say 
do you think wealth is really important? They say, nah, nah. Now, it's the same thing with power. Very few few people will admit to wanting power, but they'll say, I want to exercise leadership. I would like to have an administrative <laughs> position. I would like to I would like to be in management. I would like to do this. And we would condemn them if they say, I want power, but we praise them for saying these other things. We say, oh, what initiative. What a, what a fine young man. Now, as always, there's a grain of truth, and we've got to extract it and figure out what to do with it. Mm. Of course, we, you know, power in and of itself is not a bad thing. I'm a, I'm a father. Now, my children are long grown up, but I've got you know, the grandchildren now, and I'm still thinking about this. Uh, procreation continues after your own children. The procreative project continues after your own children are grown because then you help your, your, uh, your own children establish their new families. And uh, and I I see that um, that one has to have enough power to protect one's children. One has to have the power to direct them and guide them without without um, other people running interference and trying to get between you and your children. If I'm a, if I'm an uh, if I'm running an enterprise, I have to have the reasonable amount of power to run it. The church needs the power to uh, to worship God and to not be suppressed by the state. I mean, these are all power in a certain sense. But to say that we need the power appropriate to our to our to our mission and our station um, is very different than saying power in and of itself is the source of happiness, and that is a source of uh, of, of disaster and misery to think that way. Do you think that it's necessary to have a goal or purpose beyond yourself, beyond your circumstances, your ambitions, if you want to be? reliably, consistently happy? Well, you know, if people who, uh, who say they have, this is one of the, my, my bones to pick with the positive psychology movement, the happiness studies crowd. It's true that people who say, oh yes, I have some meaning in my life, do report higher scores on their, when, when you say, uh, oh, are you happy? But what, 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 they're, what they're measuring though are what they call positive uh, emotions. What they're measuring is how you feel. And that's not the same as uh, as happiness. Like uh, you know, you, we talked about Augustine earlier, who said, "I ask men whether they would rather be happy and just happy, or happy in the truth." And they say, "Happy in the truth." Um, it's of course we want meaning. Why do we want meaning? We are rational beings. Our minds have a built-in inclination to seek the truth and the meaning of things, especially the deepest, the biggest uh, meaning, which is God, the first cause, the first meaning, the first good, the uncreated source of of all that is that is that has the possibility of being wonderful in our lives. So if our if our if our ultimate meaning is put someplace else, um, we're going to be looking for trouble. I quote uh, one fellow in the book. You know, I I wish I could find this this article. Years ago, I read it, and uh, an, uh, a reporter had gone around and interviewed people in twelve step groups. And uh, you know, in 12-step groups, which I admire, by the way, at one point, the alcoholics or cocaine users or whatever they are, they say, um, we, I, we acknowledged that we had to yield to, to a power greater than ourselves. And so he went around, and, he, and I think, I'm not certain of this, I think years ago they used to say God, but now they say a power greater than ourselves. It's become relativistic. The, um, he went around and he said, well, for you, what is the power greater than yourself? Well, as one might imagine, a lot of people did say God. Some people said it's the power of the group. Well, uh, okay, okay. I mean, friendship can be encouraging. That's good. Uh, some people said my inner goddess. One guy said you know, what is, what is the power greater than yourself to which you submitted yourself? He said, well, for me, 
it's electricity. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, that he may have had subjective feelings of satisfaction. He may have re- given, been more likely to give a yes when asked that question on the subjective self-examination survey, the questionnaire, are you happy? Uh, but is that what we can reasonably call a happy life? It was based on a delusion. And I don't think that we, I don't think that we can. And by the way, the electricity is going to let him down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's much more to talk about in the book. I'll I'll leave our listeners uh, with with a teaser to to look at this desire for a, quote, far something that you speak about in the end of the book in, in some personal ways. But the book is How and How Not to Be Happy. Professor Wojciechowski, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.